This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello, welcome to this week's Liverpool.com podcast. I am Dan Morgan. I am joined as ever by Oliver Connolly and Joel Rabinovitz. Um, we have transfer news on a quiet Monday during the international break, during a time where there's no football, Joel. Um, Ibrahima Kanate, Red Bull Salzburg. Liverpool, according to David Ornstein and The Athletic, are advancing on a €40 million Euro deal, which would constitute meeting a release courses, clause, it's believed, um, for the defender at the earliest possible opportunity. That would, in turn, mean the summer, in all likelihood. Um, and we will have a chat about what that means and what it tells us. Firstly, um, for me, the first thing that jumps out is that Liverpool... Um, I don't think we'll stop at having one centre-back in the summer. I think there's a good chance that they um, not only do Kanate if it's a deal that they think they can get over the line, but also someone else which may or may not include Ozan Kabak. Yeah, I've seen quite a few people's kind of initial reaction this morning when it broke, saying that that, that kind of is the end of Kabak's chances of, of turning his loan into a permanent deal. I don't really buy into that at all. I think from my perspective, they, they should be looking to get two centre-backs in this summer. Um, there's a whole load of reasons for that. One is kind of the age profile of a squad in general. I think we need to kind of be continually adding players kind of in their early to mid-20s over the next few windows um, in terms of succession planning for the future. And obviously, Kanate, he's 22 now, feeds completely into that. Kabak as well, he's just turned 21. Players who can do a job uh, or perform at a very high level at the moment, but also have a lot of scope to develop in the years to come and, and could be there for the next four or five six seasons um so that's one reason the other one is there's just a huge amount of unknowns in the squad in that position at the moment so we all obviously hope that we'll see something like the best versions of van dyke and gomez next season but we don't know whether that will be the case how long it will take until that is the case um obviously we hope that they'll have a full pre-season in them by then but often the case when you come off a really long injury like they've both had that you will pick up kind of muscular problems um quite regularly um to begin with and Again, hope that doesn't happen and they would have done kind of all the rehab at Liverpool to minimise the chances of that. But I think we have to be realistic and expect that we're not going to get 38 league games out of Van Dijk and Gomez next season. I just don't think that's a kind of realistic stance to take. So I think the more sort of contingency Liverpool can put in place, if they can go into next season, say, with Van Dijk and Gomez, however long it takes them to get back to full kind of match sharpness and Konate and I would say Kabak as well, um, and then if you've got Matip fit, you treat him as an expect, unexpected bonus, really. Um, I think that's a really strong position to be in and kind of safeguards against any problems that you might have with those players coming back from injury. Um, so for me, yeah, I, I think Kanate doesn't necessarily kind of impact on Kabak at all. And I think with regards to how he's done so far um, in the circumstances, I don't think you could have expected much more from Kabak. So, yeah, I would quite like to see both of them signed this summer for sure. Ollie, well, the the other reason is you don't want to kill Kabak when he's got to get Liverpool over the line for the rest of this season. You know, you don't want to sort of say, oh yeah, we're bringing this guy in and your move's not happening because then you have to navigate him through the remainder of, of two months in the Premier League and in, in possibly Europe. So it wouldn't make any sense for Liverpool to to definitively make a play now on one or the other. You would imagine that probably no conversation will be had, but if there was one, it would be, look, you know, to come back, yeah, we're bringing this guy in, hopefully, but that means nothing in terms of your situation. That's still completely out 
you know, to debate and, and is completely still a possibility. You wrote a piece this week about how Quebec um, makes tons of sense for Liverpool in the long term. And, and there was also a Joe Gomez comparison in there. You can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I've been quite... I'd say more pessimistic on Kabak, I think, than the general consensus. I think as you as you reflected to the summer and you say you get the two of them together, I think this guarantees they sign him. I, there's no world where they would allow this to leak out and then they would just tell Kabak's agent, yeah, that's not happening now. It really now feels like it was a loan with an option because an option just gives you more chances than an obligation in case there's a massive injury or something weird happens. Um but that, that this was always going to be the way. They were just kicking the financial burden down the road until they figured out financial uh, the foot uh, until you know whether in Europe or not some extra stuff with the pandemic. Just generally having a bit more cash to play with, being able to game plan a bit more in the summer. But they've been they've been tracking Kabak obviously for a number of years, dating back to when he broke through um, in Turkey, Galatasaray. That that was the thing I wrote about this week because it, it's interesting. Now you get Kanate and. Kabak and you go through who are the player profiles similar to Joe Gomez and Virgil van Dijk and it's impossible to find a Virgil van Dijk those guys don't grow on trees they come around once in a generation maybe Raphael Varane is, is the closest fat simile but he's not quite as strong necessarily as Virgil van Dijk so it's hard to find that guy there on the market so I went through and I tried to find who is the closest comparison to Joe Gomez in Europe who is available on the market they could draft in and say well at least he's a bit like Joe Gomez and when you do the research and you go through Smarter Scout, which gives you a really good, um, it basically put inputs a ton of data, but instead of saying like, well, these guys do a similar number of progressive passes or some counting stats, it bundles a bunch of stats together to give you a true pro level player. So he takes this number of passes from this particular spot on the pitch. It just gives you a more accurate reflection of what the, the profile of the player is. And it's the kind of system that teams use as opposed to just going through, you know, spreadsheets on FBRF as they say, give me all the players under 25 who fit this mold and the top players under 24 who fit the mold of Joe Gomez from 2018-19 when he was Liverpool's most essential passer of the ball, as you wrote recently in our packing piece. Number three on that list is Ozan Kabak. But dating back to his time at Galatasaray, when he was far more of a, of a passer of the ball and he was more effective with the ball on his feet, rather at Schalke where it became, you know, all hands on deck and they were firefighting and the team around him was so awful that he he often looked lost at sea. So that to me is really fascinating that they were tracking him back then and in the, the real nerdy, deep, detailed uh, stats community, one of the closest comparisons to Joe Gomez is Kabak. So now you get him, you get Kanate, and you can kind of see them mapping up these two 21-year-old lads not identical, no one's going to be, but about as close as you can get to realistically, for 56 million combined, by the way, to having a secondary Gomez-Van Dyke partnership. And if one's out, you slot the other one. And it all just makes a bit more sense, I think, in the long-term jigsaw. Joel, you're writing a piece today on the the concept that this has a knock-on. And one of the clear knock-ons to me is, I think with a degree of certainty, we can say Liverpool have sat down and said, we do not want to go into next season with Fabinho as, as for two centre-back. You know, there's, there's this move, but obviously there's the Pep Linders quotes from last week about how there was just such uh, an effect on the team through him moving to centre-back. And and I think they've really not just re-evaluated him, but re-evaluated the importance of the number six um, and just how much it, it sets the the bedrock for the rest of the team to build around once they've, they've actually had to realise they've lost the proper number six in that position. Yeah, I mean, this is all obviously with the benefit of hindsight and how this season's panned out. Um, I do get the sense, though, now that looking back, if Klopp could maybe redo this season again, 
he might think twice about moving Fabinho to centre-back when he did, or at least for as long as he did. I think at the point that he moved him back there, it was understandable. And the thing is, Fabinho played really well. Some of Liverpool's best performances and best wins this season have come with Fabinho at centre-back. So it's not like he was a problem there to begin with. I just think over time, it became increasingly clear that in solving that position by moving him there out of the midfield, the disruptive kind of the net impact, I suppose, on the team, you could put it, was so disruptive that I think Liverpool probably were worse off for it. And I think having seen now what the team looks like with Fabinho back in midfield, and then you've got kind of a fairly rookie centre-back partnership of Phillips and Kabak, but the whole thing just looks so much more stable because firstly, you've got Fabinho, he's providing more of a shield in front of the defence, so they're not as exposed as they would be. Liverpool are a lot harder to play through with Fabinho there. But also going forward, the impact is is enormous. Fabinho's kind of distribution has always been a kind of under underappreciated quality, I think, of his. Uh, and in terms of just pinning teams back and actually sustaining pressure high up the pitch, we've seen without Fabinho and also without Henderson at the same time, you just lose so much more of that. Liverpool haven't been able to kind of squeeze teams, suffocate them as much because you don't have Fabinho mopping up attacks before they materialise. And I think that impacts, you could make an argument it's almost been as detrimental as losing Van Dijk. I think the, the kind of knock-on impacts of taking Fabinho out of that role on the entire team and the system. And I think going into next season, that's something Liverpool need to have kind of as a non-negotiable, but they build around Fabinho as a focal point in that sixth role. And whenever he's fit, you play him there uh, and don't treat him as a kind of a piece that can be moved around to fill other gaps in the squad. And I think that's, again, one of the, the really kind of big long-term and, and immediate benefits of signing a player like Kanate. If they go into next season stacked with kind of four or five really high-quality specialist centre-backs, then you just treat Fabinho and Henderson um, and as midfielders and, and play them in their best positions because that's where they are. Two, two of the best players in their positions in Europe, really. Um, so I think kind of besides the fact that Liverpool are getting a, a brilliant kind of young centre-back in Canate, the, the wider impact that we'll have on Fabinho going into next season is is enormous for Liverpool. I think once again, Oli were left screaming, what about Thiago Alcantara? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think there's so many ways in which the Thiago move just has... Um, a subconscious lying effect on everything that Liverpool have done and had to do as a result of the injuries. But Thiago is is a really good example of, you know, you have Fabinho, you have Henderson, you have Wijnaldum, you have the midfielders you want around him. You get him to play the game that you want him to play. And they will, I guess, I guess it's important to note that they will learn huge lessons from this season. Lessons about individuals, lessons about their their setup lessons about their future. Um, is there still a way in which we can in future look back on this season and say, oh well, you know, it was in the end it was a force for Liverpool good? No. <laughs> okay. Um, to me, I you know, I, I think I, I I honestly think I must think five hours a week about the fact Jurgen Klopp is likely to leave in 2024 and they lost a full season and a season that had built to this crescendo of the cherry on top should have been Thiago Alcantara walking in, swanning, you know, that, that 45 minutes against Chelsea should have been 38 games of the season, passing the ball around everyone, a rhythm unlike anyone else in the league. And then maybe not strolling to a league title, at least competing with City and maybe picking up a European Cup as well. So I'm not sure that when you lose a season in such a finite amount of time, if, if Klopp said, well, my final date and my sabbatical will be in 2030, then maybe I could reflect and say, oh, well, at least the second cycle, they'll learn some lessons. But it's going to be three seasons after this one, which I think is fascinating, by the way, that now you've got a situation where 
Clearly, Michael Edwards is plotting for a post-Klopp world, or maybe Klopp decides, you know, I'll put the sabbatical off again for another few years. But now he's signing players where either the intent is Jurgen Klopp, as we've written before, wants naive young footballers that he can mould in a certain way, and he wants that 21 to 24 age group to play a certain style of football, or the club is now plotting and planning for a squad and a future that will live beyond Jurgen Klopp, whether that's Pep Linders, Steven Gerrard, Julian Nagelsmann, you know, Flavor of the Month coach X, whoever it is, that there's a squad that's coming together there, a core underneath the order that will now last beyond Klopp. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Not the only link to Liverpool this week, um, at the start of the week. It was also linked later on on Monday that um, Marcel Sabitzer might also be a player Liverpool are tracking uh, from Red Bull Leipzig also. With a possibility he might leave at the end of the season. Ollie, you, you did write about him um, for Liverpool.com recently as part of the packing series. In your opinion, in that piece, he made tons of sense for tons of reasons. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, he's he might be the the least discussed player who's kind of in that world-class threshold of players who basically bypass opponents, whether it's dribbling or passing. And one of the few who can do it in, I think he's played about eight different positions this year. They've certainly played three or four shapes and he lines up pretty much anywhere you want. And we know how much Jurgen Klopp buys that versatility. Jordan Henderson, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, sorry, James Milner, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Sabitzer would fit that mould. He could play in, in any number of systems or shapes or alignments for you. Um, yeah, and the thing with him as well is a year left on his contract. I think the age is where it gets a bit sticky. He's 27, so there's a year left on the deal. Would you like to do maybe a 2-4-1? Could they fold that into the Canate deal if he's definitely leaving? He said he's not signing a contract. Um, but yeah, you will go through his metrics, and he is one of the most undervalued assets, so to speak, in Europe at the moment. It's surprising. There's players way below his range. You've gone, you know, Kai Havertz went for 70 million quid and is a third of the player by, by the fanciest of metrics compared to Marcel Sabaton in terms of effectiveness. So he's lying out there for anyone. I think someone like Arsenal, where maybe he would get more game time, might make some sense. But if Liverpool have this relationship with, with Leipzig, with the Red Bull group as a whole, and they think they can maybe fold it in as a two-for-one deal, it would make a ton of sense if they can get him on decent wages. Yeah, I mean, John, how much have you seen of Sabitza and, and, and in turn, how do you think he might suit Liverpool? I mean, I suppose the other question as well is, will, if they are, for instance, going for two centre-backs, you would assume the bulk of whatever they have left to do is is going to be looking at a forwards option too. I think that's already been mooted that they're going to they're going to look at bringing another forwards option into the club uh, with several names being mooted that are not unrealistic, unlike Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe. But you would wonder then is there scope to do a midfielder? And you know, I I have this I have this sort of opinion that is maybe a bit controversial, but. I don't think there's a specific need next season to necessarily replace Ginny Van Alden unless we end up with horrendous injury luck similar to what we've had this season. But, you know, they're only going to be able to spread their their budget so far, aren't they? Yeah, and my sense is, I mean, there's no way of knowing this and I don't know how Liverpool kind of configure their priorities in the transfer market where they have kind of centre-backs are number one and then we want a front free player and then if we get time and we have the money left we'll do a midfielder I'm not sure it works like that but my sense is that after kind of Canate presuming they do get that one wrapped up as expected I think they probably will start to look at front free options again whether that's a number nine um, I've done a piece on .com this week looking at who they might kind of go for in terms of adding to the front three, um, especially if they can get fees for Origi and Shakiri and shift them on. 
um, whether they look for a number nine or a versatile wild forward, um, you can kind of play across the forward line. I have a feeling that's probably where they'll look next before getting a midfielder in. I think with the midfielder, there's a few kind of question marks there. One is obviously whether Liverpool are in Europe at all next season massively impacts on all this because if you don't have those extra fixtures, they've all, even if one album leaves, as expected, they've already got kind of five, six, seven options there. If you're adding us a bit so on top, there's an awful lot of players there for not that many games. And no matter how much kind of clock rotates, you would think that sort of Fabinho, Henderson, Thiago played a bulk of those games. You've also got Jones is going to be expecting game time. Um, Oxford Chamberlain and Keita are the massive unknown quantities in all of this. I know Ollie's done a piece recently on on the kind of Keita conundrum and what you do there. Um, I think Liverpool would have to think really hard if they do get any offers for Keita or Oxford Chamberlain this summer, because I think I'm right in saying Oxford Chamberlain's 27 or 28, Keita's 26. They're kind of around the same age bracket as a player like Sabitzer. Um, and, and from what I've seen, I think Sabitzer's in, injury record is pretty good or definitely better than theirs. Um, so if you get into a situation where, say, for instance, a Premier League club comes in and offers you 12 or 15 million for Oxlade Chamberlain and you can go and get Sabitzer, I'm not quite sure what the kind of, I don't know if you know, Ollie, what the supposed fee would be for Sabitzer with one year left on his deal. Um, but I wouldn't imagine it would be an extortionate amount of money. If, if there was a scenario there where they could get some money for one of Cater Oxide Chamberlain, move them on and bring Sabitzer in, I mean, that might be an interesting one. I think I struggle at the moment to see a world in which they keep Oxide Chamberlain and Cater, and then you've got Jones, Thiago, Fabinho, Henderson, and you add Sabitzer on top. That feels like a bit of overload um, in terms of numbers, at least, and then how you kind of manage the game time of all of those and keeping them all happy becomes quite difficult. As a player, I think, yeah, absolutely. Um the scrolling through his his kind of transfer mark profile and his his FB ref this morning. He's he has like Ollie said he's played centre mid, left mid, right mid, number ten. He's played kind of deeper lying midfield role, almost like a second striker as well. He can do a job pretty much anywhere in any system, um, which is ideal. And you scroll through his FB ref scouting profile. He's in kind of the ninetieth plus percentile on so many different metrics there. Interesting aside as well, I think Liverpool have been linked quite heavily with Neuhaus of Mönchengladbach um, and he profiles as a second most similar player to Sabitzer over the last year um, and I think he's 24 as well. So yeah, it is an interesting one, but I think it might depend firstly on Europe and secondly on whether Liverpool can get offers and fees for the likes of Oxford Chamberlain and Cater. I think I think Wijnaldum distorts the conversation a little bit because it's pretty easy just a body count to say Wijnaldum out, you you bring Jones in and you say give him Wijnaldum's minutes. And that's kind of a one-for-one swap next season anyway. I think where it gets tough is the players who should now be the guys who who are kind of the key figures of the second cycle that would be Naby Keita, would be Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, are just untrustworthy at this point. So you, I don't think you can even count them really as like, bankable first-team players next season. It's like Joel always says with Joel Matthew, it's just a real bonus. You almost have to discard them from your thoughts as the players you want them to be, which would be every week in out, whether playing or on the bench, but week in, week out options. Then you've got James Milner, who's going to be, what, 37 going into next season? I 36 in January. Yeah. So you, you, you can't be saying that he's going to be our week-to-week -week option. Jordan Henderson has been picking up more and more injuries. Thiago Alcantara doesn't have a great injury record and is going to be going into uh, being 30 years old. They have a they have a big discrepancy in a lot of players who are 30 and, and the players who are under 30 aren't the, the most reliable players in terms of injury. I think they, it's a real 
conundrum there about what you do with Ox and Kate because you're just not going to find value in the market to be able to sell them. But then you, you're going in similar to the centre-backs this year and saying, okay, well, let's roll the dice with them. And you could find yourself in January with Henderson, who's had injury problems. Milner's had injury problems. They're both down. Thiago has injury problems. And you're looking around saying, we're relying again on a 36-year-old and, and Fabinho and, and then hoping Curtis Jones plugs in. Even Fabinho has not been flawless in that regard yeah. either. Um, he's had a couple this season, well, several different ones actually. So I know there's a chance you're always going to take players can always get injured, but it's not like Liverpool have five or six players there who you can bank on playing 40 plus games in midfield next season. Is the argument not though that they have to to get these players fit? They have to get games in them. So you're going to have to you're going to have to sort of back them or sack them in terms of certain players. You mentioned Chamberlain before, but there's there's also there's also Kaiser in that. There's question marks around other players, as we know, in terms of more long-term injuries and also those who suffer niggles. Is is there is there not a case where, you know, okay, they, they bring Andrew Schlumberger in now as as head of conditioning and recovery. They have to at some point say, well, we're going to commit to the unknown and the unknown might be that we go on a limb and say we bank on getting 30 plus games out of these players the, the other variable in that is that they might not have a as heavy a workload next season and that's a big one you know if they're not playing in Europe um, and God knows we don't want to be playing in any kinds of Europa conference or whatever it's called but you know there, there is a there is a possibility there that the manager either decides to trim or he decides to to stick for one more season with what he's got him and, and give certain players another roll of the dice. The problem with that is then they're another year older, uh, they're close to the end of the deal and they they you know probably have another season of injuries behind them. There's no easy way out of this, is that? Do you want to take this one, Ollie? Or, um, well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I did a piece this week actually just pondering kind of a question because I've seen... A lot of people saying if Liverpool do miss out on Champions League, obviously we hope that they, they get in either by kind of clawing their way back into the top four, which looks difficult but not impossible, or winning the tournament. But if they don't do that, which is quite possible and quite more likely than not, I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, they're better off just not being in Europe. But one of the big problems, obviously there are benefits of that, more game time, um, more time in training, I should say, more rest um, for, for players in the squad. But if they're not in Europe next season, then you've got players, we've mentioned Oxford Chamberlain and Cater there. You don't have those games. Klopp constantly goes on about rhythm and sharpness. And I think that's one of the arguments people kind of dismiss a little bit too easily about Europa League. We have a tendency to sneer down on it because our expectation is to be in the Champions League but Europa League is a classic example of where those players would get game time that otherwise I, I struggle to see saying that you go into next season. If we're saying Canate comes in, Fabinho's kind of a fixture in the sixth role. Henderson, if he's fit, he's the captain. He plays most weeks. Same with Thiago. I really, and Jones obviously is, is going to want to play quite regularly given what he's done this season. I really struggle to see a world. And if Liverpool are not in Europe, where does Cater Oxlade Chamberlain come in use other than in the kind of early rounds of the domestic cups and, you have a question in all this as well is what they want. It's not just about how Liverpool plan on using him. Oxlade Chamberlain realistically has got kind of two, three yes years left of his prime. Cater again coming into what should be the absolute peak of his career. Are they really going to be happy to just sit around making kind of maybe ten starts a season at best if they're not injured for Liverpool, or go somewhere where they're going to be kind of nailed on starters week in week out? I think that's something we need to kind of consider this summer and um, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that a club 
comes in and chucks 15 million at Liverpool for one of those two players. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I guess again on the devil's advocate, though, Ollie, is who buys them? Yeah, there's there's no one there. I think that the Ox one is, I think, almost impossible. I think you, you see a situation, we discussed this a couple of times, where the roadmap is pretty clear that he becomes a guy who runs down his contract the final two years. It, it almost helps him, helps the club. I just can't see anyone saying, let's go and take that deal off Liverpool's hands for 10, 15 million. And where Liverpool, where the line is where Michael Edwards says, it's worth letting go of a, of a player who can, we know, knows our system, we like him, he's good in the dressing room for 5 million to offset the wages. That makes sense. It, there just isn't enough value in that market there. And then you're into the final year of his contract. No one's doing that deal then. And so then you're left with a guy who's 30 years old and just walks out as a free agent, the same as Jeannie Wijnaldum, the same as Emery Chan. And then as a club, you're kind of saying, well, are we getting the reputation that we just let guys go? We don't negotiate a new deal. So that one's really tough. I can't see anyone coming in for him. I think someone will be interested in Keita, but again, it would be at a price where I just don't see how there's much sense Liverpool. I think that's what makes it really tough is it, that, that reported figure that seems like it was one of those spurious feel some international break stuff that was Real Madrid at £30 million. You're looking and going, £30 million is really annoying because that seems cheap. But is that cheap? That might be okay for a player who's not played that much. Is now 26. He's full of promise and potential. The three of us love him. I know all Liverpool fans, particularly those that have you know access to the internet, seem to think he's a stats demigod and a one day it's going to come good. But now you're looking 26 years old. He doesn't play a lot of football. He's been available this season and Klopp's gone elsewhere. That That is a noticeable thing, that he's decided to pick other players when he's been fit and healthy. And at 26 years old, £30 million pound with that injury record, that, that would maybe make sense. I, I just... It's just really hard. He, the, the one with Kate that makes it so frustrating is, you know, if they let him go in two years, he'd be winning Bundesliga Player of the Year. And it would just be it's really just, frustrating. I was going to ask you this, Ollie. Hypothetically, say you could do a swap deal this summer and you get Sabitza in for Kater and they maybe do a bit of kind of jiggery-pokery with the fee, but you're basically just swapping one for the other. Do you take it? Because I... <laughs> I think I take it because I think I want the options I want the options of, of someone who can play four different systems for yeah. us rather than just he plays a shuttling on the move number eight role and that's who he is. I think I want the option to be able to go to a two in midfield or playing out wide if you need to, to get some some resting or just some rotation. I think I, I would take that and that is probably nuts because Cater's one of the most gifted players I think in Europe when he's it's healthy just, and flying. It's the fear of getting stung but it's, he's going to do kind of not obviously of the scale that De Bruyne has done. Uh, since coming back, but kind of being in that position or letting Sturridge go to Liverpool like Chelsea did, it's is seeing him fulfil what we all thought and wanted him to be elsewhere, which is a, is a distinct possibility. I think that's the scariest kind of thing with, with that whole situation. I mean, just stay on, on the, the Red Bull link, if you like, for a minute, Joel. It's, it's, another, it's another transfer, potentially, we need to put that in, that would again indicate that this is more than a mere coincidence Liverpool clearly seem to like the model that Red Bull run. Um, not exactly a roaring success of past players, if you'd include Cater with Takumi Minamino. Um, but, you know, it's clearly a, a relationship there that one that strictly goes beyond Liverpool saying, oh, we quite like that player and he happens to play for Southampton. Yeah, it's, it's almost got to the point where it's kind of like a, it's one step below being like a formal club to club partnership thing because there's just so many of them now. I think as well the the Kirby training complex was based on the, the Red Bull design. I think it was the Salzburg training complex um, that Liverpool had a look at when they were designing that. 
they're obviously in touch of each other and kind of look at each other's scouting methods and i think what one of the interesting aspects as well um kind of looking forward and what liverpool might do in years to come we've seen the kind of downside as well if you cut out the middle map what liverpool have done with players like cater and mane and canate is it let them go to the big uh, red bull club which is obviously leipzig obviously mane goes to the premier league they see who he gets on there and they they let them kind of have that that time um in a, in a major league to see what they're really made of we've seen liverpool try and sort of shortcut it with the minamino one and take him straight from salzburg before a club say like southampton picks him up and gives him kind of two or three seasons where you might have to pay 40 million a few years down the line and the risk obviously is is what's happened with minamino that he wasn't quite ready and he wasn't the player that we all kind of hoped and thought he would be and that's not to say that he definitely doesn't have a future we, we're not quite sure how that's going to work out this summer but it shows that kind of if you go straight to the source at Salzburg, it's obviously a, the Austrian league is, is a lower standard. You're taking a much bigger gamble. The upside obviously is, is massive if you get one right. Dortmund obviously took Haaland straight from there and he's going to get sold on for a, a crazy amount of money this summer. Um, another player that people are talking about as a potential Liverpool target this summer is Daka, um, who's again scored a ridiculous amount of goals. I think it's something like 27 and 30 games this season all comps um one that Liverpool might look at but again you are to kind of weigh up that risk and do you let Dakar go somewhere in the Bundesliga or the Premier League for a few years and then be prepared to kind of pay quadruple the price a few years down the line or do you kind of take that chance yourself and try and develop them um but it is an interesting one I wouldn't be surprised if we see kind of a consistent steady kind of drip feed of these players over the next few years still not much going the other way, Ollie, is there? I mean, can you see Nico Williams getting a game with right back for RB Leipzig? Not for the Leipzig, uh, not for the Leipzig variant, maybe the Salzburg one. You know, they don't do much of that at all. Even when Gruwich and other players have been sent out to the Bundesliga, they haven't sent them to Leipzig. Andre Wiston went there for uh, Andre Wiston alone. Yeah. But was that back in the when they were playing in the eighth division of the German league, or was that when they were? I think it was around the 16-17 season, if I'm right. He played a full season at Salzburg. They played regularly. They also, let's not forget, I mean, they tried to do the Werner deal. That, you know, Leipzig could have done no more on the Werner deal. Jürgen Klopp was on the phone to him all the time. He just chose to take 200 grand a week off Chelsea rather than 90 grand that Jota wound up getting at Liverpool. There's definitely, a lot of this is probably trust. It's trust in either of its like shared medical reports, maybe ahead of doing a physical, whether it's just trust in each of those player evaluations and understanding what the, the timeline is, trust in it not leaking to the press. This deal was again like announced as almost a formal signing announcement at, at the end of March, as opposed to it leaking and dragging on for weeks in the press. I understand it's a release clause, so there's not much of a negotiation but it's pretty clear that they alert Liverpool that, hey, this is on the market. This guy's available. He's probably going to be moving this summer. Are you interested? And so there's certainly a, a, a trust going on there in a number of different ways. It's a fascinating one. I do wonder how much it is of FSG just getting in with a group who's done this cross-club thing, you know, expanded across Europe and, and just having a nice relationship with people as they embark on what is the next stage of FSG, which is owning their own series of clubs and trying to see what that model is like and, and just working with them and have a good communication for when they launch their own project with multiple clubs across Europe. Joe, the, I mean, this, this flies in the face of the, the Liverpool will have a very quiet summer brigade. Um, what does it tell us, if anything, about the mindset? I mean, can we... Can we read as much into it as to say, okay, well, we know Liverpool are serious about making sure they they go and prove themselves next season. Is it a case that 
they're just getting business done early and there might still not be a lot of business or is there something else at play that we can take from this potential deal? I mean, I think I said it on, on the last dot-com pod, but I, I think it might be kind of the most player turnover we've, we've had in a few years under Klopp, which obviously not saying that much because there's been so little change really in the last few summer windows. But I think there's just there's a few things coming together now. Obviously, the way this season has panned out, the uncertainty around players coming back from injury, players like Milner who are kind of moving right into the twilight of their careers, one out of expected to move on. It's, it feels like we just arrived at a natural kind of crossroads where a certain amount of change is going to be required. And, and that's not to say they're going to like rip up the current team or anything like that. I still think that going to the first game of next season, the majority of players who start that are players who are already at the club. That's going to be the case. But I think you're just seeing kind of step by step. The Jota thing was kind of almost the beginning of this process of, like Ollie referred to earlier on in, in this show, they are kind of thinking about life beyond Klopp now, um, or at the very least kind of bringing in players who over the next three years are going to have more hunger and haven't achieved things yet um, in their careers. And you know, something that any big club needs when you've, you've won trophies, you can't just keep rolling with the same group time and time again. Um, so I think Canate is definitely the first step in that. I, as I said earlier, I think the front three um, will be looking at another kind of whether it's a stylistically similar player to Jota, I think it would be the same sort of thing where they see a player who's capable of taking that, that step up from being a very good player in a lesser team to suddenly you put him in and around Liverpool's forwards and over the next few years explodes into something you know, on a completely different level. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, I'm not sure in terms of volume of incomings that there'll be absolutely loads. I think you probably may be looking at three, four, possibly five signings just off the top of my head. Um, for Liverpool now and that's obviously dependent on outgoings and, and what they bring in but again there's just players there on the fringes uh, we mentioned Gruwich earlier as well the time has just come for him to be playing regular football Shakiri, Origi um, it does feel kind of like a bit of a changing of the guard summer for Liverpool in that regard I think I mean I suppose the, the eternal question to Ollie is whether this is all dependent on finishing places and like we've talked about selling players you know is there is there still much of this hinging, do we think, on the fact that Liverpool must play European football, for example? Or do we say that, you know, FSG have clearly already committed to a budget spending plan of, of getting Liverpool back to where they need to be? It seems that based on all the reports, I mean, we've, we've seen a number of different numbers the last few weeks, but both, you know, they all seem to range between 40 and 60, somewhere in that region that they've already said. This is the budget going in. It seems like they've identified, at least to me from the outside, we got January wrong. The guys we wanted, clearly it was Canati, maybe McConaughey was in there as well, and they would take either of them, and, and Bayern got one, and they got the other. They weren't going to get them because they were playing in the Champions League, so they couldn't do those January deals. You add Canati to Cabot, that's $56 million. So that's right in that reported range of FSG said, that's the money, right? So they've done them now. That's the money done. And whatever you raise from here on out, you've got the whole transfer window now. Yeah. Whatever you raise from here on out is your spend. You want to go get a forward, go and raise the money. You want to get a midfielder, go and raise the money. I think that's a pretty sensible, fair approach to say, it doesn't matter if we're in Europe or not, we have 60 million quid to give during a pandemic. It's there, yeah. you've spent it, happy days, whatever you raise from here on out. It gives them a position of strength. Do they really want to haggle over 12 million, 15 for Shaq or not? That's now entirely in their control. However much money they raise from here on out, I think is what they would spend uh, uh, the rest of the summer. I think that what they've spent on Kabak and Kanata, because I think the Kabak deal is all but certain now. That's me, I imagine, is is the complete budget of what FSG said would go beyond the, whatever they raise in player sales. 
I think just to, to add to that, Ollie, as well, I did, I did play a, um, a piece rather on the site not that long ago, looking at what Liverpool could realistically look to raise through sales this summer. And there's obviously the main, the obvious ones that we expect to leave that you can't really make an argument for. Shakiri, Origi, Wilson, there's a few others out on loan. I think where the Oxley Chamberlain cater thing becomes really tempting for FSG or or Klopp or Edwards, if you look at where their standing is in the squad, you probably rank them, what, sixth, seventh, maybe eighth in the midfield pecking order. They're selling one of them for, let's just say, 15, 20 million for argument's sake. If you're selling one of them, if you can get rid of your sixth or seventh choice central midfielder, that might well end up in this context, prove to be the difference that allows you to go and buy, say, a Rafinha or a Pedro Neto, who's going to be kind of playing quite a lot of games and have a massive part in the front three. And I think on balance, if you can compare that and say, look, we're not really realistically going to use Cato and Oxo Chamberlain that much, but we really want the forward who's going to be there for the next three, four years, you might then be more prepared to cash in on on one of those two, Cato or Oxo Chamberlain, than you might otherwise. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I still think there's a, a surprise up the sleeve here. I still think there's something that they've probably maybe already done. Um, and I think that there's potential that there's there's a workaround for them that they've already identified if, are, if they are um, announcing this deal as soon as they are. just want to finish off, Jens, a, a bit of a new feature that I'm just going to bring in right now, actually. Uh, I want you to tell me a piece on the site you've enjoyed this week and why. Um, I will... Um, I will make a start, and I'll, I'll go first on the on the piece that we did together, uh, fixing Liverpool's goal of the season winners under the Jurgen Klopp era. Uh, it follows on from a piece that we've done recently about the Player of the Season awards, and it reminded me just how many how many good goals there are in this in this last six years, even. But you know, going back further, there are just so many that you miss out on. Um, so yeah. That, that one really stuck out to me, but obviously I was involved in it and it was really good to write, but they were there were some in which, you know, you're just looking now, you forget how good Roberto Firmino's goal against Manchester City was, which I think you voted for, Ali, in 18-19, uh, in which is about uh, a simple finish on, on the end of about a 400-pass move. Um, so, I you know, I really enjoyed that piece. I thought that was worth... Um, anyone's time if they wanted to have a look over it. Did you guys change your minds with anyone else's decisions and choices once you'd looked at them? And, and the, best thing about, the best thing about that piece is just being able to sit through YouTube for hours and then just reminding you for, for days afterwards of some of the goals are extraordinary. I really wanted to, in that piece, find a way to get Coutinho in there. I do think that as it becomes kind of this, this kind of sad lost story that, that how world-class he was for that seven, eight-month spell might get lost to time unless people like us who cover the club continue to say, not in the context of should they bring him back, he's a completely different footballer now than, than he was for those six, seven months, but how spectacular he was during the club era should never be forgotten. And had he stayed, I think he could have gone on to be a Ballon d'Or winner or what have you. So squeezing Coutinho in was all I was uh, bothered about in that piece. I, I dropped a couple of Sturridge ones in there. I think <laughs> we all kind of tend to categorise, looking back on his Liverpool career, we just look at 13, 14 and see that as peak Sturridge. But I think we can sometimes forget just how many like amazing moments he did actually have under Klopp, even though he was never really a kind of... He didn't have a full season of being the kind of constant first choice, but there were just individual... I think the ones I've picked with a Chelsea away equaliser at the beginning of 18, 19, 
uh, and the Sevilla Europa League mm-hmm. final goal, uh, which just makes me sad thinking about it because that should have been the Daniel Sturridge final um, as a goal. We just have to look back as the beginning of Liverpool's collapse in that game, but it's, it's an unbelievable strike that I think hardly any players in the world really would even try at that point. It's it's interesting that you see a, th- a few themes emerge as well. I had a, I had a couple of really sort of team goals in there that I was fond of. Joel, you loved a, a sort of spectacular strike, if you like. Um, Ollie, you went for Colo Torre at Aston Villa. <laughs> <laughs> That's the strangest. I think that might be the strangest goal I've ever seen. It, it, it when you rewatch it, it looks like about four whistles have gone off, and no one moves. The ball doesn't move. There's no swerve. Colo doesn't move. Not a defender moves. It's it's very strange. And then, of course, you get the explosion of the reaction. It, it's, that might be the most bizarre goal in Liverpool history. I'm just going to say we were, uh, we were all scraping the bottle in 2015-16, put it that way. Um, how about you, Joel? Is there anything that stood out to you over the last week on the side? Well, we, we've obviously been doing quite a lot of joined-up pieces, which have been good fun recently over the international break. The one Ollie and I did over the weekend, um, just pondering the question, if you take Stephen Gerrard out of the equation, who would you class as the five most influential players for the club this century? Um, which is just a really interesting thought exercise, really, because mm. you kind of mind. I, I kind of wrote my five down, which Ollie ended up going for the same ones. I think we all agreed with, which were Van Dijk, Suarez, Salah, Allison, and Henderson. But then there's ones that I started to think of afterwards, like should I have chucked Michael Owen in there for what he did in the early part of the century? Sammy Hippie has probably got a shout. It was really difficult not to find a place for Mane in there as well, given the, the role he's played in the early years and moving forward in the entire Klopp era. Um, so it was really interesting in the end. I ended up, I think we both went Van Dyke first. Um, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that as well. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think I struggle with the Suarez elements, if I'm being totally honest, um, because. He was important up until a point. Um, I think this, the circumstances surrounding him meant his importance was never really truly felt in that he, he was never sort of part of a, a Liverpool team that remains on the ascendancy to something. I think you have to look clappy and I, and I think you have to look sort of, you can't really look past Salah and Van Dijk and for different reasons, really. I mean, the, the Salah argument is... is is truly sort of underplayed in the sense that people genuinely thought he was coming in to to do 20 minutes of Sadio Mane's running when he was tired. Genuinely, people, people thought he was a player Liverpool could bring on when Sadio Mane was, was, was going to be tired in games. And he just takes the league. Um, and, and the concept of being Liverpool's sort of goal-scoring totem for... For something that was sort of born in him all along that none of us seen and and yeah I, I think those two would be a, a certain starting block for me I know I never took part in the piece but that's definitely where I'd start I think there'd be a couple of others in there uh, I think you put Andy Robertson in there for how many problems Liverpool have had as well yeah yeah for the problems Liverpool have had with the left back position over the years that we had a good laugh about this morning on the call um, to actually come in and, and fix that and then some and, and still offer that sort of you know, sort of Scottish um, consistency and, and Scottish sort of fair that a lot of Liverpool players of old did. Um, I, think I, I really, into it. 
I really wanted to get Robertson on there. It was the, that far, that list of five is unimpeachable, I think, as from an objective analysis. That's why I kept the same five guys. But Robertson is kind of uh, the embodiment of the Klopp era, the finding the guy, you know, at Hull and go and get him. And as you're saying, Dan, the passion and the energy as well as the skill, that kind of defines that Klopp era. So I think he fits as kind of a totem of that. The Suarez argument is interesting. I had him on there. I was doing almost like the, the grandchild exercise, even more so than the importance. Like in... 30 years, someone comes to me and asks me to talk about Liverpool drawing my childhood into, into adulthood. Who would come to mind? I think he would be the player who first came to mind as much as Gerard. It's just the, the whole package of it all, not necessarily the off-the-pitch stuff, the the whole, just the, the style. Me and Joel were laughing about it today, how much he would just laugh at his own excellence. He was amazed by his own genius in a way that I've never seen a footballer. Messi has a bit of it in a way he'll giggle sometimes. He can't believe how great he is. But Suarez is genuinely confused at his own amazingness. Um, which I've never experienced before in a ground. I've never experienced so much in a ground of player to nonsense into artistry where it's just the ball is in the air. No one else knows what to do. All right, I'll just go past three people, slide in the bottom corner, see you next week. Um, and I just think if, if you're asked, I think about it in the way that my dad talks about Kevin Keegan, where I don't think people necessarily from a certain age group talk about Kevin Keegan the same way. Obviously, they talk about Dag Leash and people from a certain era and certain fans still feel scorned by the fact he wanted out uh, at the start of it all. But the way he looks in his face when he talks about him, I think is the way I feel about Luis Suarez. That you had to be there. You had to be there. And that's why I put him there because I don't want it to get lost. That you had to be there to experience what it was like in the ground when this guy was going off on one. And the rest of the team was awful. Everyone was terrible. And this guy was the best player in the world and he was playing for us. So I think he he really is is invaluable to that history of the club. Who, what sort of uh, content stood out for you this week, Ollie, apart from the two we've mentioned? Well, I liked and found it slightly depressing. Me and Joel did a prediction piece going points by points, trying to figure out the rest of the season. That That's always a fun exercise because you start going through the fixture list. And at, at one point you sit there and you start getting excited, like, hang on, they could really do this. Top four is really in play. Then you remember they haven't won three football games in a row for, was it, it feels like, four years at this point when was the last time they won three football games in a row Not i can't remember <laughs> yeah i think we both ended up i think you had them on 64 points in the projection i had them in 65 yeah. so we're both kind of in that ballpark i don't know Oof. if you've had a chance to, to run through it then but the, there's some really frustrating fixtures in there we we did it joel had a good idea of doing it in kind of the blocks how they would identify them three three and, and i think four um it's three threes three threes so it's yeah, yeah it's there's some, there's some rough ones in there. There's fixtures where you say, hang on, they should really hammer West Brom, and particularly at that stage of the season where that team is probably down. But then again, you take the totality of the season and go, will they just not fancy it that day if they're not that sure about making top four? I always prefer that first three block, which is where they really need to pick up seven to nine points idea, which is Leeds, Villa, Arsenal, right, in some order. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually prefer those games against teams who might have a go, who are all playing for something. Um, I, I almost prefer those three games. And then if you get rolling, then maybe you have a real chance. And, and it's a straight shot against Chelsea at this point. Um, but that was fun to try and game plan it out. And then at the end, yeah, slightly worried. I'll be optimistic and say we, we just touched 70. Um, but it's I, I can't be I can't be overly optimistic and say that'll be enough for top four because I don't think it will. Um, I think Leicester are, are, are worth keeping an eye on, but they, they are sort of getting over that hump. Um, just through grinding out games when they need to. So, yeah, I, th- I think I think it is probably beyond Liverpool. But um, we'll end, end on a high note, given that there's there's some transfer news today, and and that is that you know Liverpool are potentially looking at bringing in a centre half for next season. And next season is where many of us are now looking. But for now, 
uh, do be sure to check out liverpool.com and um, if you have any feedback on the podcast let us know um, be nice as always and we'll see you next week hopefully bye you've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo